Well, good evening. How's everybody doing? This evening we are continuing in our series of studies in the book of Nehemiah. You can turn there with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2 and in verse 1. And let's open in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, Heavenly Father, we desire more than anything else to hear your voice, to know your will for our hearts and for our lives. As we study the life of this man, Nehemiah, and his heart for you and his prayers to you and his desire to be used and your call upon his life. May each and every one of us be inspired to hear your voice, to receive your call, and to do the things that you've ordained and called for us to do with our lives. May our lives have meaning whether we're in our 50s, 60s, or 70s, or older, or we're very young. And we're just getting started in our lives. May our lives account for something. May, may it, when we look back at our lives, be able to say, Lord, you used us because we listened to you. Because we sought you in your word and you spoke to our hearts. And so we pray this evening that you would do that very thing. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick it up in chapter 2 and verse 1. And I, and I want to read just the beginning of this and then talk a little bit about what we studied last week. But in this chapter, Nehemiah is asking Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, to send him to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. And he shares his burden for the Jewish remnant, the exiles who are living in Jerusalem and in Judah. And he shares that burden as he's in Persia, as he's in the citadel of Susa. He, he is sharing his heart with a pagan king, his heart for God's people, his heart for the city of Jerusalem. And he shares that with King Artaxerxes. Let's read verses 1 through the first part of uh, verse 4 in chapter 2. In the book of Nehemiah, we read, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? What is it you want? Now, it's important to recognize that Nehemiah is about to share what God wants, not so much what he wants. But here's the key. When you want what God wants for you, you want for nothing. When you want what God wants for you, you want for nothing. Because you see, God had called Nehemiah to a work. Let's recap a little bit. See, the news that he had received concerning Jerusalem had broken his heart. He had sat down and wept and mourned, fasted and prayed for some time. And he had received this news in the month of, month of Kislev in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. And this was several months before the events of this chapter in the month of Nisan. So several months later, he's been praying, he's been weeping, he's been mourning. He's been crying out to God in humility because God had given him a heart for his people and a call to meet their needs. He was just waiting for the opportunity to do the thing that he was born to do, called to do. 
He had spent months in prayer and preparation, waiting on God for direction and guidance. He did not impetuously jump to meet the needs of his people. So important. I mean, I think we have a a knee-jerk reaction sometimes when we are, uh, are acquainted with someone's needs and we start to think, well, I'll just meet that need. It may not be God wanting you to do that or not at that time. See, he understood that observing the needs of others isn't a call to immediately respond. When, when you respond immediately without praying, without seeking God in humility, you might get the opportunity, but your heart hasn't been prepared. Your life hasn't been prepared. You're not where you need to be to be used by God. This man had spent the time preparing his heart, God preparing his heart for the call that he had placed upon his life. And God had placed him in an extremely influential position in the Persian court. You see, he served Artaxerxes as the royal cupbearer, the cupbearer to the king at the citadel of Susa, the palace of the Persian Empire, and he was entrusted with protecting the king's food and drink. So when it says he's the cupbearer, it's not just his job was to take the cup from the table and bring it to the king. Everything that the king drank or ate went through this man. I mean, he was entrusted like the secret service with protecting the king. Because the easiest way to affect a regime change at that time was through poisoning. And so he made sure that the food was secure and never touched by anyone else. He made sure that food was prepared, that it, they, they had tasters. They made sure that nothing ever got to the king that could have harmed him. And so he ensured the king's safety from his enemies. And given his close access to the king... Nehemiah was among his closest advisors. This was a man that he obviously trusted. Now Moses, Joseph, Daniel, Esther even, had also served in the court of powerful leaders. And God used many of the Jews, many of his people, to serve in the courts of kings and emperors. And, you know, when you do that, when you're serving in that way, you have a tremendously influential position where you can influence all the people under that king or that emperor. And not only that, but you can be a great voice for your own people like Daniel was for the Jews. Now the king noticed something. He noticed that, it's, that something had saddened him. All the time that this man served before the king, King Artaxerxes, he was never really all that sad. But at this time on this day, and remember, he had been praying for months, but on this particular day, he just couldn't contain the sadness of heart that he felt for his people. He had never been sad in the presence of the king before. And the king discerned. He realized that something had broken this cupbearer's heart. So he asked the question. Shows that the king was acquainted with him, that he cared about this man, and that he valued whatever it was that he was going through. He valued this man. What did Nehemiah do? Well, Nehemiah shared his burden to rebuild the city of Jerusalem in Judah. And he shared that with the king. He basically said, how can I not be sad, right? How can I not be sad? Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? How can I be happy when my homeland, the city I came from, that place that I call home is destroyed and needs to be rebuilt? Now, it's one thing to weep over the ruins, but he knew that after having wept, he now needed to work. It's one thing to have been distressed, but now that he had been distressed, he was determined. And as we said last week, weeping precedes working, distress precedes determination. You have to be ready in your heart. 
And when his heart was so fully prepared that he couldn't contain the brokenness that God had placed in his heart, God used his face, which showed his heart, to open up the door of opportunity with the king. He couldn't contain it anymore. And I'm going to tell you something. You know, if you can sort of contain your feelings, it means that you're in control. Nehemiah had reached a point where he couldn't control how he felt anymore. Because God had so placed a heavy burden on his heart for his people that he just couldn't pretend everything was okay. He had been fully prepared for the work that God had called him to. And it was time. It was time for him to go. And so, here he was, fearful of the consequences of sharing this source of his sadness. He just didn't do that with the king. He wasn't there to cause the king to worry about why he might be sad. He was there to serve. But now he had been waiting on God for direction and guidance for several months, and now his face could jeopardize his position as cupbearer and possibly even his life. And he would jeopardize his life possibly by speaking up, by actually saying the truth. But he told the truth about how he was feeling. And listen, men like Moses and Daniel and a woman like Esther had experienced similar circumstances in their lives where they had to just speak up and speak the truth. And it might have cost them their lives, especially in the case of Esther. But they had to do what was right. They had to say the truth tell the truth. I'm glad in our nation today we finally reached a point where people of good conscience have realized that not saying the truth is a terrible thing. And you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a little bit about what's going on in our nation politically, and I'm realizing we finally reached a, a, a point where the threat of being canceled or disliked doesn't matter anymore. People are like, I don't care. This is the truth. I'm not going to listen to that anymore. You know, the boogeymen with their masks would say, oh, you can't say that. And we're just saying, oh, yes, we can. We can say whatever we want. Oh, you, you don't have the freedom. Well, yes, we do. And if enough people stand up and tell the truth, then those people that are trying to silence us, they just go away like spirits or ghosts. The ghosts of the pandemic, I might call them. The people that came out of the woodwork to try to scare us back into submission. But you know what? As a people, as a culture now, we've reached a point where people are bold. People who are running for office who are ahead are the people who are bold. The people who are being listened to are the people who are brave and speak the truth. And so this man, Nehemiah, spoke the truth. Men like Moses and Daniel, women like Esther, they had experienced these circumstances and they realized the best thing you can do is speak the truth. For evil to continue, good men just simply need to do nothing. And that's what we've experienced in our nation. Men and women did nothing, and so evil prospered. But things are changing, and I'm glad to see that. For Nehemiah, if he didn't speak the truth, he wouldn't have been true to himself. He wouldn't have been true to God. He wouldn't have even been true to the king. He needed to tell the truth, and he did. He recognized that God had now fully given him the opportunity to share his burden with the king. He was waiting for this opportunity. He was praying for this opportunity, crying out to God for this opportunity. And when the opportunity came, he didn't flinch. He didn't fail to share the burden that God had placed in his heart. If tomorrow morning at work or during Thanksgiving dinner with your family later this month or at some point over the holiday season, someone asks you a question like, what is it you want? Are you prepared 
Because Peter said we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. So if someone says, well, you know what, I've noticed you over the last couple of years, as bad as things are, you're always, you're always positive, you're always happy, you're always filled with joy, and even though things are terrible, why is that? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Has your heart been prepared to share the hope, the truth of God's word? I hope so. Nehemiah was prepared. The king had asked him, what was it that he wanted from him? He knew that he had mentioned this for a reason. I mean, Artaxerxes knew he wasn't just saying this. There's something he wanted from the king. So he followed up. What is it you want? What is it that I can do for you? What is it you're requesting of me? This was an invitation for Nehemiah to present a formal request of support to the king. Over the years, I've had many opportunities to sit with ministries and missions, uh, missionaries. Uh, they they kind of do their pitch, you know, this is what we're doing. We'd really like for you to support us. And we support a number of missions and local outreaches. We, we don't support every one of them that we can, but we support the ones we feel that God has led us to support. And one of the things I look for, honestly, are these individuals strong in the Lord and not in their own strength? And are they seeking God? Are they being led of the Spirit? Because if I detect any, any whiff of the flesh, if I, if I detect any, any corporate approach, I'm not interested in supporting that. I, I like to support people that say, you know what, we're looking for God to do a work and all we're doing is making ourselves available. And if you'd like to be a part of it, you know, that intrigues me, that interests me. I want to invest in a work that I know is God's work, not man's work. So many of these ministries, so many of these outreaches are man's work, and they amount to nothing. Even if they do a lot of quote-unquote good, they actually don't amount to anything in eternity. But then you have one or two people just trying to do their best, trying to follow God's will. And those are the kinds of people that I like to support, and we as a church look to support. Well, here's what happened. This invitation comes to Nehemiah, and he's prepared. He's got it all together. Now, realize the king could have been offended by his burden for the city of Jerusalem. After all, he could have said, what are you worried about Jerusalem? You serve here in Susa, in the palace. I mean, the king could have viewed his description of the city of Jerusalem as an insult. He could have viewed it as him being critical. Jerusalem was under his authority. He could have viewed that as, what are you saying? He could have taken it personally, but but he didn't because this was God's open door. We said a few weeks ago, when we studied the church of Philadelphia, Jesus' letter to the church of Philadelphia, that Jesus said to that church, I, I open doors that no one can shut. I shut doors that no one can open. An opportunity that God presents to you is always the best of, of opportunities. And you have to walk through those open doors. Nehemiah had walked through a door that could have cost him his life, but of course it didn't because God was with him. And so, what did Nehemiah have to say? Look at verse 4 latter part. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. So before Nehemiah opens his mouth, he prays. We saw in chapter one that he pretty much prayed through that whole chapter. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. He's a man of action, but he's a man of prayer. In fact, because he's a man of prayer, he's a man of action. And he doesn't waste his time doing things that God hasn't called him to do. He gets the things that God has called him to do accomplished. There's a thing in martial arts called economy of movement. It's the idea that you do what makes the most sense. So you're not looking to waste energy, waste time, or waste movement. Economy of movement. You know, there's an economy that we can employ spiritually as well. 
and that is an economy of spiritual movement. You have to be in a place where you're not going to waste time doing the things that get in the way of God's will. A lot of people get caught up in things that God doesn't call them to do, things that don't matter, things that are just a mere distraction. Nehemiah was a man who was never distracted from his call. Why was that? Because he knew that he knew that he knew what he was called to do. And every time he didn't know what to say or didn't know what to do, he prayed. And God revealed to him what to say, what to do. And we'll see that throughout this book. And this is no exception. It says, I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. I like the order. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates? so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. He understood that God had given him favor with the king. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So he got everything he asked for. Everything this man asked for, he received. Ask, and you will receive. Ask in my name, Jesus says, and you will receive. You'll have everything you've asked of me. See, the problem with us asking God is so many of the things we ask God for are not what God wants for us. Or we get ahead of schedule. We want things that we're not ready for yet. Oh, there are many people that have very wonderful gifts to teach and to lead. And, you know, they, they want to lead a church or a ministry. They're not ready yet. Their heart hasn't been broken. They're not in the place where they can truly be used. But they want to be used. And, and that's an admirable thing. But if God were to give them what they think they want now, they're not ready for it. I often use this analogy. You know, my wife and I have these little ones in our lives, so many of them. And and, and if you were to give one of these five-year-olds a crystal vase, a very, very expensive crystal vase, at five years old, it's probably not going to see six years old. But if you give that to an 18-year-old or 20-year-old, a different story. It's not that the vase is a bad thing, it's the timing is off. And and I would say that if you're asking God for something and it hasn't happened, either the timing's off or you're off, and it's not something that you should be asking for. When you pray according to his will, he hears you and he gives you what you've asked of him. The scripture tells us that. Jesus tells us that. So if you're asking and not receiving, you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your lust. That's what James tells us. So the scripture gives us many examples of this truth that when you ask for something according to God's will, you will receive it. So why did Nehemiah receive everything he asked for? Because everything he asked for was according to the will of God. 
So prayer is more about making sure you're aligned with God's will for your life than it is what you actually ask for. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Makes it sound like, oh, I have desires in my heart. Give them to me. No, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And when your desires are lined up with his desires and you ask, you receive. That's the work of prayer. The work of prayer is aligning our hearts and our desires with God's will. That's work. That's why we pray in earnest. That's why you might spend hours in prayer because you have to discern God's will and pray according to God's will, even and maybe especially if God's will is something contrary to your will. For Jesus himself said, not as I will, but as you will. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, if Jesus had to fight that battle in prayer, you and I certainly do as well. So that's what Nehemiah was doing for months. And now, he's made it clear. He's requesting to King Artaxerxes that he support his plan. He has a plan, of course, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. See, I always believe you pray and you plan. You pray and you plan, and then you do. But it's okay to plan. So many times in prayer, I'm working out a plan. God's plan. I'm looking for the details to put that plan together. And when I feel that I've discerned God's will and his plan, and I need an open door to open, I pray for the door to open. And when it opens, I know it's God. I know it's his time. And so, I mean, I can think of a few times with missions trips where, you know, I say, Lord, do you want me to go on this missions trip? I've been on, you know, 10, 11, 12 trips to this country, but, but do, do you want me to go on this trip? And I would always pray that way. I didn't just assume that I was going. And then I would pray, and I would wait, and I would look, and, I, and God would always confirm. And there were times where he said, no, I, I think the last trip I was planning on going on was uh, 2019. My wife and I were playing about, praying about going to Cuba. We had been there in 2015 and in 2017, and we were hoping to go in 2019. This was before covid and uh, there were just a lot of things going on in our family. My, my father-in-law passed away that year. And it was just too many things going on. It was very obvious that the timing wasn't right. And then, of course, what happened? We got hit with the pandemic, and the rest is history. But that was clearly not God's will for us at that time. You can't just go and say, oh, of course God wants me to go. I'm just going to pray and tell God what he needs to help me do. One of the things I do is like, Lord, if the money's not there, then, you know, it's kind of hard to go. So if God provides, if he guides, he provides. And then I know, well, okay, now it's an option, you know. Sometimes I have to sign up before I know for sure because God has made it clear. It's very hard sometimes to uh, put your flesh aside and discern God's will because so many times you want to do something, I want to do something, right? And we just, we just really, how could God not want me to do this thing? It's a good thing. It's not a sinful thing. But when I look at the heart of Nehemiah, I realize this man got it right. He prayed to the God of heaven, and he answered the king. So important. He immediately prayed. Oh, he didn't go into his closet and say, oh, I'll be right back, king. I got to think about this. He just prayed on the spot. Just prayed to himself. Maybe it was, God, help me. Maybe it was, okay, Lord, I know what I need to say. Help me to say it. Or like Paul said, give me the boldness to speak as I ought to speak. That's what he said to the Ephesians. He asked for prayer. He said, that I might be bold. When Paul asks for boldness, you know he needs boldness. As a man who knew how to be bold, but sometimes he needed to pray for that. 
So he asked the king to send him to Jerusalem, specifically to rebuild the wall of the city. Now the king asked him how long he would be away and when he would return. And if Nehemiah had said, I'm not really sure, can I get back to you? That wouldn't have been a strong argument, a strong case. The man had it all figured out already. So yes, he was praying and planning. He knew exactly what he needed, pretty much how long it would take. He was prepared to ask. He was simply waiting for the open door. Of course, the king wants to get him back. He trusts him. But he also is prepared to send him. So he needs to know approximately, how long do you think this is going to take? So he told him. And the king was pleased to send him to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The Jews had been trying to rebuild their city for for a very long time. When Cyrus uh, became king of Persia, after the Babylonian Empire fell to the Medo-Persian Empire, it was about 538, 539, 538 B.C., when they were allowed to go back, and they did go back. A group of them did go back. They took them a couple of decades, but they rebuilt the temple. And then Ezra had returned, and they brought about religious reforms. And now they had tried over those years to rebuild the city, but they hadn't been successful because the timing wasn't right. Now the timing was right, and the man that God had called was prepared. And so the work will commence. Now Artaxerxes was king when Ezra recorded and compiled all of the history that we've been studying for many months, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, he was involved in compiling that information. Not necessarily always writing every part of it, but taking those different writings, putting them together in pretty much of a, a seamless narrative that we could understand. Ezra is the historian, Nehemiah is the leader that rebuilt the walls. But you see, Artaxerxes became king in 465 B.C., which is about 50 years after the temple had been rebuilt. So for 50 years, the temple was standing there and being used by the Jews, but the walls and the city were in disarray. Artaxerxes had issued a decree for Ezra to return to Jerusalem to bring religious reform. We studied that in Ezra 7. And he now issued a decree for Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. That's what we're studying tonight. One of the things to be aware of is that Artaxerxes was the son of King Xerxes, who was the king in the book of Esther. But he may have even been, although we're not sure, he may have even been the son of Queen Esther, which would explain perhaps why he had a heart and a compassion for the Jews. If his mother was Queen Esther, that makes sense. But even if not, God was working through this man, Artaxerxes. The Lord used Artaxerxes to fulfill a prophecy that Daniel had made years earlier. In fact, you're probably familiar with this. We studied it when we were in Daniel uh, chapter 9 on Sunday mornings a few months ago. It says, know and understand this in chapter 9, verse 25. This is the prophecy that Daniel received from an angel, from the angel Gabriel. No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, the anointed one. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, and the, the city will be rebuilt with the streets and the trench, but in times of trouble. And it goes on to give a prophecy of many, many years, 490 years, from the time of that edict, that proclamation by Artaxerxes, which is predicted by Daniel many, many years earlier, to the time the Messiah would come was calculated down to the day. We talked about this when we studied Daniel. But the starting point was the proclamation of Artaxerxes. And wait a minute, 
It was the exact day that God had ordained, and he used the man named Nehemiah. So why did it take months? Because it wasn't God's timing for it to happen sooner. See, God had said through Daniel years earlier, that almost 100 years earlier, this is what's going to happen. When this proclamation is made, from that time, there will be X amount of days, and then the Messiah will come. Had it been earlier, late, it wouldn't have timed out to the prophecy that God gave them through the prophet Daniel. And by the way, if you calculate, I want to get into this tonight, but if you calculate the number of days in those 490 years, if you, if you break it down, and actually it's 483 years because the last seven years haven't been fulfilled, there's a, there's a break in that 490 years. It even says in Daniel that at that point the Messiah will be cut off. We're still waiting for those last seven years to be fulfilled. They're called the Daniel's 70th week or the seven years of tribulation, which we're talking about and we'll talk more about on Sunday mornings in our studies in Revelation. But there were 483 years that led up to the moment where Messiah presented himself the exact day, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when Christ presented himself as Messiah to the city of Jerusalem, to the day. So this was not just chance that Nehemiah happened to look sad on this day and be prepared to ask so that the king would issue a proclamation that Daniel had prophesied years and years earlier. You see how God is in control of all these things? See, here we are thinking, why not now, Lord? Why not? And yet God has this plan that goes beyond our lifetime. And we just have to trust him. We really do. And so back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, interesting, interesting leader, wonderful man of God, presented a formal request of support to the king. Now, he had already received the king's approval to go. He was going to be sent to Jerusalem, but he now requested letters from the king to keep him safe on his journey to Judah. See, if he didn't get there alive, well, that wasn't going to work, was it? And he also requested a letter from the king to supply the timber necessary to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, if he got there safe but didn't have what he needed to get the job done, that wouldn't have been very good either. So he had all this figured out because, you see, God had placed it in his heart and he had months to pray about it. And notice when he received everything he requested, he says it this way, And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. He doesn't say, oh, man, my pitch was so good, they had no choice but to respond and give me everything I needed. No, it wasn't about Nehemiah. He knew God had put his hand upon him, and so he was going to get everything he asked for because he asked for the things that God told him to ask for. Okay. A couple of things I think we can apply here. And there's three things I think you could do. If you're taking notes or you just want to hold on to these thoughts, if you're looking for God's direction, there are three principles I like to to hold on to when I'm looking to do a work or stepping out to do something that I believe God is calling me to do. There's three things I look for that confirm that God is in this. The first is God has to confirm that you're sent. God has to confirm that you're sent. And God confirmed that he had been sent because the king said he could go. If you don't know whether God is calling you, or you're not really sure, you're not ready. You have to know that you're sent. If it's a missions trip, if it's a ministry, if it's getting married, 
If it's buying a home, it's moving, whatever it is, whatever it is you're contemplating, you need to know that God is in it. We talked a little bit about this last week. The first thing is sent. And there are three. Sent. God confirmed that he had been sent. But there's something else that Nehemiah needed to know. And that's why he asked for the officers and the cavalry to accompany him. He needed to know that he would be safe. You know, there's some crazy people that say, I don't care, I'm ready to give my life. Whoa, whoa, You know what, listen. When I go to El Salvador or Cuba, I I don't want to be a martyr. I'm not going there to die. I'm going there to serve the Lord. I know I'm sent, but I need to know I'm safe, too. I'm not going to take any crazy chances. So being sent is a good thing. Being sent is a good thing. Being safe is is a good thing, too. And understand, being safe is important. God confirmed that he would be safe. He he put that out there. He said, okay, great. I'm glad I can go, but can I have letters? Can can you send cavalry with me? I want to make sure I get there safe. I like what he says. So they, they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. He didn't consider that a lack of faith to say, yeah, you know, I need some bodyguards. It's not going to be an easy journey. I don't want to get picked off on my way out there. He had many enemies, as we'll see. So he needed to be safe. Finally, when you're going to do a work of the Lord, you not only need to be sent, you not only need to be safe, you need to be supplied. You need to be supplied. You need to have what you need. And God confirmed that he would supply his needs. That's why he asked for the letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, not just for safe conduct, but a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he would give him the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel. Now, they had the stone because they had the ruins. Stone wasn't a problem, but timber was. Timber wasn't available. They needed timber from the king's forest. That would be something they needed. That would be something that they needed supplied. And so, Nehemiah made sure he was sent by the king. He made sure he was safe on his way. And he made sure that when he got there, that his needs would be supplied. So I'm going to say to you, if you're thinking about making a decision or doing something, think about those three words. Sent, safe, and supplied. And if you can't say that you know that those things are true, maybe continue to pray until you do. Sometimes God will say, I got you, don't worry, you're going to be safe. Or he'll confirm it in another way. You have to wait for that confirmation. You should be wondering about these three things. These three three things will need to be confirmed in your heart before you step out to follow the call of God. Well, he traveled from the citadel of Susa to Judah, which is in Israel, and he presented the king's letters to the local authorities. These letters assured the governors of the trans-Euphrates that he had been sent by the king. That was the authority that he needed to let them know, needed to show that authority, show that letter, And the king also sent the army officers and cavalry with him to protect him on his journey. So he had everything he needed. But then, as we close, it's interesting what happens in verse 10. In verse 10, we read that when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Only an enemy would respond that way. And it's, isn't it interesting that Nehemiah was identified by the enemies of the Israelites as a threat to their personal interests. Because he was standing up for the people of God, the enemy viewed him as a threat. 
Here's what I want you to know. Even though you'll be sent, even though you'll be safe, even though you'll be supplied, you're going to have to deal with the enemies of God and his people. In fact, that's one of the ways you will know that God has sent you. Because if you've really been sent by God, then the enemy isn't going to take that lion down. You can expect, anticipate opposition. Sambalat and Tobiah, we're going to talk a lot about them. They were enemies of God and his people Israel. They had a vested interest in keeping the Jews who returned to Judah in trouble and living in disgrace. They wanted the status quo. They wanted things to stay the way they were. They wanted the wall of Jerusalem to remain broken down and burned with fire. Because they didn't want God's people to prosper. And isn't it interesting that as soon as Nehemiah set out to fulfill God's call upon his life, to meet the needs of his people, the enemies of the Jews noticed. The minute you say, Lord, I really want to be used by you. I'm going to go on the missions trip. I'm going, to, I'm going to step out and do ministry. I'm going to teach Sunday school. I'm going to get involved in this outreach. I'm going to come to the church and serve. I'm going to set up. I'm going to, whatever it is that you're going to do in the ministry, you're going to be faithful to it. The very next thing that will happen will be the enemy says, oh, we've got to take that guy. We've got to take her out. We've got to take him out. Can't have that person serving the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. What are you, crazy? Can't have them loving their neighbors as themselves. This, this will not do. Our enemy hates with a passion anyone who will stand to promote the welfare of God's people. So when you step up, recognize what comes next. You're going to be opposed. You're going to be attacked. A person that receives God's burden and seeks God's blessing on God's people will battle God's enemies. And so, that's part of the preparation as well. Recognizing that if God calls you to a work, he doesn't call you to a picnic. He calls you to a battle. And if you're ready to step up and be counted for God and for his kingdom, you need to have the armor of God. You need to be ready for what's about to happen. Can you imagine if you enlisted in the armed forces and you were trained, you went through basic training, and then you were called into service and you were called out on the battlefield? And the minute someone started shooting at you, you said, what is this? What do you mean? They're going to fire bullets at us? I, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't think I was actually going to have an enemy that was going to try to kill me. You know, so much, it's funny because so much of martial arts is preparing for being attacked. It really is. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I spend preparing for an attack that I hope never comes. You prepare so much so that when it comes, you don't even think about it. You just respond the way you're supposed to respond. But you're constantly preparing for an attack. The premise of martial arts is you're going to be attacked and you need to be prepared when it happens. You don't sit around saying, I can't believe he swung at me. You know it's coming. You're waiting for it. You've trained for this. You're half expecting it. And if you get on the subway, you know it's coming. And yet Christians, so many Christians... Disciples of Christ sign up for ministry and then they're shocked when the bullets are flying, when the punches come, when the attacks, one after the other, 
happen in our lives. The most important thing I want to leave you with is that you can expect, you can anticipate, you can count on the attacks. And as we'll see as we go through the rest of the chapters of this book, sure enough, every single step of the way, Nehemiah was opposed by men like Sambalat and Tobiah and others because he knew he had enemies and those enemies knew who he was. So brothers and sisters, as we continue to study the book of Nehemiah, we prepare our hearts for whatever it is God has called us to. All of these lessons are extremely valuable. Don't be shocked when the punches come. Don't be shocked when you're attacked for stepping up and doing what God has called you to do. It comes with the territory. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and these wonderful lessons in your word. And we ask now that as we continue to allow you to prepare our hearts, that we would be fully prepared for battle, prepared to stand, equipped with the armor of God, talked about in Ephesians 6, having all that we need to stand, knowing that we're entering a battle, knowing that we're entering a place where we're going to be attacked, but we're also going to accomplish great things as you work through us. Lord, may we always seek you and pray in the moment Maybe not wait, but seek you in the moment and, and hear from you in the moment that we might answer the way we ought to according to your will. And I pray as we study through this book that each and every one of us that know you would be fully prepared to serve you and to serve others. And for those who listen who don't know you, that they would be inspired to give their hearts to you completely. To recognize that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins so that we can belong to you. That hearts would be surrendered to you and that those that don't know you would begin their journey with you. You as their personal Lord and Savior. For the rest of us, encourage us and continue to lead us forward, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.